Today's lesson from the Old Testament comes from Isaiah chapter 56, verses 1 through 8. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those who are already gathered. The word of the Lord. Please stand today for the lesson from the Gospels. Lesson from the Gospels. Mark 11, verses 11, 32. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around, everything as it was already let. Distance a fig tree in light leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And and his disciples heard. They and they came to to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and being began to drive out. Those who sold, those who bought it in in the temple, and he overturned the temple, the tables, and of the money changers' 
and the, the seats of those who sold pigeons and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple and he was teaching them uh, and saying to them it's not written written my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations but you have made it a den of robbers and the chief priest and the scribbles scribes heard it they were speaking sneaking seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching and he and when every every and when the evening came they went out to the of the city as they passed by in the morning they saw a fig tree withered away to its roots and peter remembered and said to him rabbi look the fig tree that you cursed his withered and jesus answered them have faith in god truly i say to you whoever says to this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will come to pass it will be done not for him therefore if i tell you whatever you ask in prayer believe that you have received it and it will be yours and whenever you stand praying forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who has heaven may forgive you your you your trespasses the gospel of our lord jesus christ thanks be to god Well, good morning. We begin this morning, as we often do, speaking more directly to the children among us. I know some of us have been on spring break the past week. How many of us have been on spring break? I know not everybody. Any kids do a lot of homework during spring break? No? Anybody very excited to go back to school? Yes? One out there? I knew it would be Romilly. Well, to get us ready to go back to school, kind of get our brains working again, we're going to start this morning with 
a pop quiz. And I know not everybody has been with us in the entire series that we're doing, but does anybody remember what book of the Bible we have been going through during the spring? The Gospel of Mark. And in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has done very many miracles. And so the pop quiz is, what miracles up to this point has Jesus done in the Gospel of Mark? And parents, adults, feel free to chime in. Kids, what, what are some of the miracles that you remember Jesus doing in the Gospel of Mark? No. That's actually, I believe that's only found in the Gospel of John. But, good guess. He healed a blind guy. Multiple blind people Jesus healed up to this point. Yes. The guy's son. What, what was wrong with this guy's son? Or what, what was this issue? Yeah, he, he was demon-possessed and was having seizures? Is that the one that you're referring to? Mark chapter 9. Excellent. Yes. He healed a paralytic. That's right. His friends, remember, they brought him down from the roof. There's one with water. Anybody remember a miracle he does with water? Yes. He calms a storm. He walks on water. There's one involving every something we all love, food. What does Jesus do with five loaves and two fish? He feeds like 50,000 people. 5,000, 50,000. He feeds a lot of people with a small amount of food. Jesus does all of these miracles. He raises people from the dead. And after doing all of these things, Jesus has one more miracle left in it. And knowing all the amazing things that Jesus has already done up to this point in the Gospel of Mark, what would you expect for Jesus' final miracle? Right? The grand finale. Something amazing, right? Something spectacular, something mind-blowing that will leave an impression upon all who witness it. Because you save the best for last, right? Has anybody ever heard that you save the best for last? Has Jesus saved his best miracle for the last? So his first, last and final miracle before his impending death, what does Jesus do? Jesus dramatically curses a fig tree. And says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And less than a day later, the entire tree has withered away to its roots. Now the question is, are you impressed? Are you impressed by this final miracle that Jesus has done? More spectacular than calming a storm, walking on water. Jesus has cursed and withered a fig tree. Now upon first reflection, it might seem that this is a strange miracle. I don't know if you're thinking that to yourself. It's kind of a weird story when you first read through it. In fact, it's the only one of Jesus' recorded miracles in the Gospels that's destructive in nature. In all these other cases, right, he's helping people. But in this one, he's cursing a tree. It does seem a bit harsh and vindictive. There doesn't seem to be any pressing need that Jesus responds to other than the fact that there's this incidental detail in the story. I don't know if you noticed this, but it just says Jesus is hungry. Jesus is hungry. He sees this fig tree, and he's hoping that the fig tree is going to have food for him. So is Jesus just hangry? Is that what this is? He's just hungry. He's getting angry and frustrated, and he takes it out on this poor little innocent fig tree. 
If that were the case, knowing what we know about Jesus and the fact that he's displayed his power over the created order, the physical world, we know that Jesus could have done the very opposite, right? He didn't have to curse the fig tree. He could have made the fig tree bear fruit so that not only he, but all the other disciples around him can eat it. So the question is why? Why does Jesus curse this fig tree? Why does he choose this as his final miracle? And to understand this strange miracle of the fig tree, we must remember that all of Jesus' miracles in the Gospels are not mere displays of his power, but they're for us to show us who Jesus is, what his identity is as the Messiah, and what his kingdom is like. All of Jesus' miracles have a purpose. And the cursing of the fig tree is no different. And in some ways, as we'll see, it makes sense that this is the last of Jesus' miracles because it, perhaps more so than any of the others, is the reason why the Jewish authorities want to put Jesus to death. So here's the main idea of today's sermon. No surprises. The tree without fruit symbolizes the temple without forgiveness. So the tree without fruit is a symbol of the temple without forgiveness. You see, the key to understanding the cursing of the fig tree by Jesus is is to connect it with the story that's commonly referred to as the cleansing of the temple. And Mark does this very deliberately. He introduces the fig tree. He then shares the story about Jesus cleansing the temple. And then he goes back to the fig tree and teaches us the lesson about what it means. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. Please pray with me as we go into God's word. Dearly Heavenly Father, we come before you again with hearts and minds that long to know you better, that long to experience your presence. We pray that you would give us hearts and minds that not only hear your truth, but respond to it in obedience. We pray that we would not be merely hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And so bring pleasure to our Heavenly Father. Help us to see more clearly who Jesus is and the salvation that he has come to offer so freely and fully to us. I pray that this morning, through your Holy Spirit, you might bind our hearts to Christ even more closely, and that we might more deeply drink of the salvation and forgiveness that he has given us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So I said this morning, the main idea of the sermon is the tree without fruit symbolizes or represents the temple without forgiveness. This means that the withered fig tree that will never bear fruit again is a symbol of the Jerusalem temple and everything that it represents. So this morning we're going to talk about two things. We're first going to talk about the tree, and then we're going to talk about the temple. So first, the tree that is without fruit. And we're going to start with an agricultural lesson. So we're first going to learn about fig trees. And this is what one commentator writes about fig trees in the land of Israel. And it's important to know this information to help us better understand what's going on here in Mark chapter 11. Uh, So listen closely. After the fig harvest, which we all know comes from mid-August to mid-October, after the fig harvest, the branches of fig trees sprout buds that remained undeveloped throughout the winter. These buds swell into small green knobs known in Hebrew as pagim, in March to April, so about this time of year. So about this time of year, in Israel, all the fig trees that have kind of been lying dormant for the entire winter, they're beginning to sprout these buds called pagim. And these buds are edible, but they're like, it's like eating unripe fruit. 
This process is followed shortly by the sprouting of leaf buds on the same branches, usually in April. The fig tree thus produces fig knobs, which are edibles, which are edible, and even preferred sometimes by natives before it produces leaves. This is what's important. The fruit comes before the leaves. Okay, that's what we need to know for this passage. Once a fig tree is in leaf, one therefore expects to find branches loaded with these small, unripe figs in various stages of maturation. Fruit before leaves. Now then, let us read again from Mark chapter 11, verses 11 through 14. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked all around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Uh, so this story, Mark chapter 11, the setting of it is Passover. And Passover is one of the most important Jewish festivals in the entire calendar. You'll have thousands, tens of thousands Jews coming from all over the land, descending upon Jerusalem, so much so that there is no space for all the people within Jer- Jerusalem. It's kind of like, you know, everybody's descending in Austin this week for some reason, and there's no way you can get a hotel anywhere. So everyone has to stay in the surrounding areas, like small towns called Bethany. On the following day, when they came back from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat from you again. And his disciples heard it. So it's April. Uh, Most people believe that, or most scholars believe that, on the year in which Jesus was crucified, Passover occurred in the first weekend of April. So the setting is Passover, early April, and Jesus sees a fig tree off in the distance that is full of leaves. Now what we've learned about fig trees means when we see leaves, what do we expect to find? At least some fruit, some edible, maybe unripened, but still edible fruit on the fig tree. This helps us to understand that the point of the story is not that the fig tree did not have fruit. The point of the story is that the fig tree appeared to have fruit. It gave off the appearance as if it did have fruit, but it didn't really. It gave the appearance of life without any true potential to sustain life. Yet, that still makes us wonder why the harsh response from Jesus. Why not leave the fig tree alone? Why not give it time in order that the fruit can ripen and mature. It is because, as we said, the tree, with, the tree without fruit symbolizes the temple without forgiveness, and Jesus' judgment on the fig tree is intended to represent his judgment on the Jerusalem temple and everything that it represents. Okay, so that's the fig tree. Now we come to the temple. And for the temple, we need a history lesson. You see, The Jerusalem temple in Jesus' day is not the same as the temple from the Old Testament. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. But the ancient temple in Jerusalem goes through three distinct phases. There's three different buildings that are all called the temple in Jerusalem. The very first temple is the temple that's built by Solomon around 950 BC. It stands for 400 years until it's destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BC when Israel is conquered and taken into exile in Babylon. So that's the first temple. The second temple is after Israel comes back from exile 100 years later, they rebuild the temple under the leadership of this man named Zerubbabel. 
and that is the second temple. And that's the temple that stands for most of the period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. Okay, so the first temple, Solomon, most of the Old Testament. The second temple is the temple that exists between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. And the third temple is the temple that stands in Jesus' day. And this temple is built by King Herod. And it is one of the like, greatest building projects ever in the ancient city of Jerusalem. It takes 50 years to extend, and it dwarfs in grandeur and uh, like size both the first and the second temples. It's a much different temple than the first two temples. Because the first two temples, as you may be aware, according to the biblical standards, is a tripartite temple, meaning there's three sections to the temple. The Old Testament temple is a long, narrow building with three parts. There's a front porch, there's a center section, and then there's the Holy of Holies in the very back. And as you go through the temple, access is only granted um, to priests in the center section. And in the very end section, it's only granted to the high priest and then only once a year on the Day of Atonement. And I know that's a lot to take in. That's a lot of information, but why am I saying all that? It's because Herod's temple is different than the Old Testament temple. The way that it's structured is not the same. The difference is Herod builds two giant courts outside of kind of the Old Testament model. So you still have the Old Testament temple, but around that, Herod builds the court of the women and the court of the Gentiles. And the reason he does that is to exclude or make it clear that Gentiles and women, including all those who are blind, lame, have any physical um, defect or deformity or anything like that, they're not allowed in the real temple. They have to stay in the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles is the setting for Jesus' actions in Mark 11. So every time it says temple in Mark chapter 11, he's actually referring to the court of the Gentiles because that's where everything is occurring. And this court of the Gentiles is the marketplace for all commercial activity that's accessible to all peoples, Jews, Greeks, Gentiles, people who are ritually unclean. Everybody can come to the court of the Gentiles. But all throughout the court of the Gentiles, there's this giant wall that separates it from the actual temple. And on that wall, there's a bunch of signs. I think there's 13 signs, and every sign says the exact same thing. And this is what it says. No alien, that means no foreigner, may enter within the balustrade around the sanctuary and the enclosure. It means you can't go in. It's, it's basically the version of a keep-out sign. Whoever is caught on himself shall he be put blame for the death which will ensue. So you have the Old Testament temple which is supposed to signify God's presence. You have all these signs on the entrance of the temple that says, if you're a foreigner, keep out. And then you have the court of the Gentiles that's built for commercial activity, the marketplace. And at a time like Passover, which is one of the most important festivals, as I mentioned, this court of the Gentiles would be overwhelming, completely crowded. There's this Jewish historian named Josephus, And he says that during Passover, can anyone guess how many lambs would be slaughtered 
at one Passover in ancient Israel. One lamb per family. 5,000, that's a lot. Even more. 50,000, 100,000. Josephus, if we can trust him, he says every Passover, 250,000 lambs will be slaughtered. That means in the court of the Gentiles, you have hundreds of thousands of people. Hundreds of thousands of animals. Not only that, you have hundreds of thousands of coins needing to be exchanged for the temple tax. That is the background for Jesus coming into the court of the Gentiles and doing what he does. It says in Mark chapter 11, verses 15 to 19, They, Jesus and the disciples, they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the, te- the temple, the court of the Gentiles, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Uh, pigeons were offerings that poor people who couldn't afford uh, more expensive sacrifices, they would buy pigeons and offer them. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And Jesus was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. Because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching, and when evening came, they went out of the city. So Jesus is criticizing the court of the Gentiles here in pointing people to the true nature of God's temple, the place of God's presence, as a house of not commercial activity, but as a house of prayer. And not as a house just for Jews, not just for ethnic peoples who are descended from Abraham, but it says as a house of prayer for all nations. Not only that, the place that is given to the Gentiles for worship is more like a busy shopping mall than a sanctuary. Have you ever tried to pray in a loud or busy place? Now imagine trying to pray in a place with the sights and smells and sounds of an open animal market surrounded by hundreds of thousands of people. You see, they did not create a space that was conducive for non-Jews to worship God. But it's even deeper than that. Their sin goes even further than that. Mark chapter 11, verse 17, Jesus' statement saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called the house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made a den of robber? It actually comes from the Old Testament. And it's two different Old Testament passages put together. One of them is Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7, and the other is Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. Jesus takes these two passages and combines them in order to criticize the temple during, the time, during his day. Isaiah 56, 7, which was read as part of our lesson from the Old Testament, reads thus, These, that is the foreigners, I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called the house of prayer for all peoples. Did you catch that? It says, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. But for the non-Jews of Jesus' day, this was an impossibility. They could buy an animal in the court of the Gentiles, but they could not go into the actual temple to sacrifice it. Which is actually different from what it says in the Old Testament. 
In the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 15, when it talks about what are the laws of sacrifices, listen to what it says about foreigners, non-Jews. Every native Israelite shall do these things in this way in offering a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Okay, so it just gives all the instructions about how Jews are to offer sacrifices. Right after that, it says, And if a stranger is sojourning with you, or anyone is living permanently among you, and he wishes to offer a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord, he shall do as you do. The same rules apply. For the assembly, there shall be one statute for you, and for the stranger who sojourns with you, a statute forever throughout your generations. You and the sojourner shall be alike before the Lord. There's no distinction. One law and one rule shall be for you and for the stranger who sojourns with you. That is the biblical model in the Old Testament. No distinction in offering sacrifices to God for Jew and non-Jew alike. Yet at the time of Jesus, what has happened? The temple is for good ethnic Jews. And everywhere else, the court of the Gentiles, which has actually just been turned into a marketplace, not a place of worship, that's what has been given to the Gentiles, and that's what Jesus is criticizing. But it's more than that. Because oftentimes when Jesus quotes the Old Testament, he's not only talking about that specific verse, but the context of where that verse comes from in the Old Testament. So not just Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7, but the entirety of Isaiah chapter 56. It's really interesting because if you read Isaiah chapter 56, the first half of it speaks of God's salvation to all people who are formerly excluded from it. Foreigners, eunuchs, exiles, Gentiles, the part that was read for us. But if you read the second half of Isaiah chapter 56, it is about judgment against Israel's leaders who are supposed to be shepherds that lead their people. But Isaiah chapter 56 says these shepherds are people who have no understanding and they seek their own good and their own pleasure above the good of the people that they're called to serve and to lead. Jeremiah chapter 7, the context is judgment against the people of Israel for their sin against the Lord, including the destruction of the temple. So you remember I talked about uh, the first temple that was built by Solomon but was eventually destroyed? Well, God says that he destroyed the temple because of Israel's sin. And Jeremiah was the prophet during the time of the Babylonians when the temple was destroyed. And he said this in Jeremiah chapter 7. Because you have done these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called to you, you did not answer. So God sent the prophets to Israel over and over again to repent of their sin, but they did not do so, and God eventually brought judgment upon them. He says, Therefore I will do to the house that is called by my name, in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers, as I did to Shiloh, and I will cast you out of my sight, as I cast out all of your kinsmen. So during the time of Jeremiah, this is what's happening. Jeremiah is saying, God has sent you all of these prophets to repent of your sins. And the people are saying, there's no way that God is going to judge us because we have the temple. The temple is the promise of God's presence. They were trusting in this physical structure, but being completely ignorant of the ways in which they were living their lives contrary to God's purposes and his will. And Jesus is saying that the people in his day are doing the exact same thing Jesus quotes Isaiah chapter 6 and Jeremiah 7 to show that the Jewish leaders of his day are the same as the leaders in Isaiah chapter 56. 
and that the people's trust in the temple is the same as the people's trust in Jeremiah chapter 7. And the judgment that came on the temple in Jeremiah chapter 7 is the judgment that will come on the temple in Jesus' day as well. This episode is commonly referred to as Jesus' cleansing of the temple, but Jesus' mission is actually far more transformative than just a mere cleansing. You see, if Jesus' primary goal is to cleanse and purify the temple, then we must judge him as largely unsuccessful. Because I said there's hundreds of thousands of people and sheep. Jesus flips over a few tables. Likely he creates a small stir, exits the temple, and then everybody just continues going about their business. The court of the Gentiles is basically the size of UT. So UT is what um, what we call 40 acres, right? 40 acres of UT campus. The court of the Gentiles is 35 acres. Jesus did not walk 35 acres going around telling everybody what was happening. That tells us that Jesus' actions are largely symbolic. They represent the judgment that is about to come. Jesus is not a reformer. He's not someone that's saying, you're getting mostly everything right, but you need to make a few changes here in this temple. Jesus is not someone who believes that that system can be salvaged. He says it's rotten to the core, and it has to be rejected. Jesus' point is that there's no true forgiveness in the temple, and no amount of human activity can change that fact. This is what Hebrews chapter 10 says. Think about this as you imagine everything that's happening at the temple during Passover. Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Did you catch that? Sacrifices don't forgive your sins. Sacrifices remind you of your sin. So when you walk into the court of the Gentiles and you see everybody for, with their lamb ready to be slaughtered to pass over, what are you supposed to think? Wow. How great is our sin. And whatever we do, it's not enough because we're going to have to come back next year and do the exact same thing. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Full stop. Further down in Hebrews chapter 10. But when Jesus says, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings offered according to the law, then he added, Behold, I, this is Jesus speaking, have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Meaning he does away with the temple and its sacrificial system in order to accomplish God's will. And by that will, we, that is Christians, have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering of sin. You see, Jesus does not tell the fig tree, 
You just need a little more time. We just need to prune you a little bit, give you a little more water, and you'll be fine. He doesn't tell the fig tree that it will eventually bear fruit. No, he looks at it and declares, you will never bear fruit again. Why? Because the fig tree represents the temple. Like the fig tree with leaves that bears no fruit, Herod's temple has the hustle and bustle of human activity, all done in the name of service to God. But Jesus declares that it's unable to provide true life and worship to God because it cannot provide that which we all truly need, which is forgiveness of our sins. Forgiveness with God. Which leads us to the very last part of our passage, Mark chapter 11, verses 20 through 25. It reads thus, So after Jesus cleanses the temple, they go. The next day, it says, They passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree, and it was withered away to its roots. Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you have cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your father, I'm sorry, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your father also is in heaven may forgive you and your trespasses. Jesus tells us that true faith is marked not by sacrifice of animals or the paying of tithes, but by a spirit of dependence on God in prayer and a willingness and eagerness to forgive others. You see, one of the great litmus tests of true Christianity is our capacity to forgive. Those who have been forgiven by God are eager to forgive others. If the life of faith is one marked by willingness and eagerness to forgive others, the question for us this morning is, can you forgive? Are you quick to forgive? Are you uneasy if you know that there is something or someone that you need to forgive? Not because of the insincerity of their remorse or because they've really changed, because they've understood the depth of how they have sinned against you, but can you forgive them because you yourself have been truly forgiven by God? Children, can you forgive your parents? And honestly, I'm not asking that question only to the young children among us. Can you forgive your parents for their harshness and inflexibility? Can you forgive them for the pressures and expectations that they sometimes put upon you? Can you forgive them for passing on all their fears and anxieties, their neuroses and their dysfunction onto you? Can you forgive your parents? Parents, can you forgive your children? Can you forgive them for the poor decisions that they've made in their lives? The consequences that you've had to see them suffer, even though you told them over and over again not to do whatever they did? Can you forgive your children for the ways in which they've disrespected you and not listened to you? Can you forgive those friends who've betrayed you or said nasty things about you behind your back? Can you forgive your spouse for the myriad ways in which they have hurt you? when they've acted selfishly? Can you forgive your neighbor, your teacher, the person who cuts you off on the road, the colleague who works actively against you and speaks ill of you behind your back? Can you forgive these people? 
Or will you choose to be like the fig tree? Will you choose to be like the fig tree withering away because you would rather hold on to your pain and your hurt and your resentment rather than choose the freedom of forgiveness that comes only through Jesus? See, church, we can only freely forgive others when we ourselves know the joy of being forgiven by God by the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Do you know this joy? When you pray, you don't need to be distracted by all of the 250,000 sheep being led to the slaughter. What that represents is human effort. When you pray, the basis of your prayer is not any human effort. It's not your sincerity. It's not your desire. Your focus should instead be on the one sheep, the one lamb led to the slaughter, Jesus Christ, who for you on your behalf, willingly, obediently went to the cross. And what are some of Jesus' most famous words that he utters from the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What a loving Savior we have in Jesus who forgives us when we don't know what we do. And yes, he forgives us even when we do know what we do. Friends, each of us, in a way, is that fig tree deserving to be cursed by our Lord for having the appearance of fruit but no real fruit. Yet what is the good news that Jesus says to you if you only come to him by faith? He doesn't point at you and curse you and say, never will you bear fruit again. But instead, he looks at you and the words of John chapter 12, 24 ring true. John 12, 24 says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You see, that fig tree, that fig tree dies and it never bears fruit again. The temple, which the fig tree represents, it's destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans and never rebuilt. But Christ, Jesus, Jesus is the only one who dies. And in dying, bears fruit, and gives life. He's not the cursed fig tree, but the Bible tells us that Jesus himself is cursed, but that only through his curse will we receive true life. It's Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, I'm sorry, Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 through 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to not just the Jews, but to all people, the Gentiles, in order that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Isaiah chapter 48 says this, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father,
We pray that your word would continue to speak to us. We ask that you would help us to be honest with ourselves. To be able to be aware of not only the many ways in which we need to be forgiven, but all the ways in which we have held on to bitterness instead of forgiving others. I pray that, Lord, as we look upon Christ, the one who was cursed on our behalf, I pray that we would experience the true joy and freedom of forgiveness in order that we might fellowship and commune with you, with Christ, and with the Holy Spirit. And in doing so, would you soften our hearts toward others? Would you make us eager to forgive others? Almost excited when we have the chance to forgive, uh, forgive others, not because we enjoy being hurt, but because we love sharing in the joy of forgiveness and reconciliation. It is your great glory part of what makes you who you are to forgive sinners. May we have the joy and the privilege of sharing in that. May we forgive one another as you in Christ Jesus have forgiven us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.